Mick Sullivan of The Past and the Curious has a new book available. That's me. I See Lincoln's Underpants is a book about famous people and their underwear. 16 chapters on 16 people and their undies and lots of other stuff too, like the Underwear Hall of Fame. Lots of laughing, lots of learning. It's available wherever you get your books. And if you wind up with a copy, please leave a review. Be sure to request it at your local library too. That will help. This is an indie effort. I am an indie operation. Thank you. Well, hello! It's episode 78 of The Past and the Curious, and I am Mick Sullivan, and this is my show. First off, I want to say hello again, and thanks to everyone who came out to WBUR, the podcast festival in Boston, at the beginning of this month of April. It was amazing to meet so many listeners, and I was thrilled to see everyone. I hope you had a good time. I was literally moved to tears. So if anyone out there has pictures that they want to share, send them on my way. I'd love to see them. It was also great to spend so much time with so many of my Kids Listen podcast pals. And speaking of Kids Listen podcast pals, the first story of this episode features my good friend, Melly Victor. Melly is the creator and voice of Stoop Kids Stories podcast, but you've heard her work all over the place, including on Imagination Neighborhood, the podcast. Um, you may have even seen her on, on stage in New York City. She also happens to be the chair of Kids Listen. She also happens to totally rule. She's going to narrate a story about one of my favorite singers, Ella Fitzgerald. And then the second half of the episode looks at an age-old problem, tuning musical instruments with each other. But you might be surprised by some of the problems that came about because people didn't agree on how to tune. We'll get to that in a minute. Right now, let's get started with Melly Victor talking Ella Fitzgerald. On the evening of November 21st, 1934, a very nervous young woman named Ella Fitzgerald stood off stage waiting to go on at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. Never before had she stood in front of a theater audience like the one filling the many seats of the Apollo. Honestly, she had barely worked up the courage to sign her name on a piece of paper that gave her the chance to be there in the first place. But a few friends convinced her to give it a shot. They believed in her. They believed in her so much that she later realized that those friends hadn't actually filled out cards of their own for the lottery to perform at the Apollo. Years later, it dawned on her that they also filled out their cards with the name Ella Fitzgerald. It seems they wanted to improve their friend's chance at getting her big chance. It worked because here she was, nervously fidgeting while waiting to take the stage at the Apollo's amateur night. Long before there was American Idol, The Voice, or any other culturally important talent competition, there was amateur night at the Apollo Theater. But at the Apollo, the judges aren't official talent scouts or famous music producers. Instead, they are the 1,500 audience members filling the cushioned seats of the historic building. It's that way now, and it's been that way since it opened. Leaving your destiny up to your talent and how an unfamiliar audience reacts would be nerve-wracking to say the least. And Ella was most certainly nervous. She was the first act of the amateur portion and had walked through the doors with a plan to dance a dance she had choreographed in her head. 
everyone knew her to be a terrific dancer, so it made sense that she would compete on the stage as Ella Fitzgerald, dancer. Doubt soon crept in to compound her nerves. Just before her moment in the spotlight, a pair of professional dancing sisters worked their audience into a frenzy. The Edwards sisters had come to New York from Chicago with a flashy and perfectly polished tap dance that took Ella's breath away. She knew that there was no way she could compete with what the audience had just witnessed. So she panicked a bit and informed the host at the last minute that she wouldn't be dancing after all. Ella Fitzgerald was born in Newport News, Virginia in 1917. Or Maybe 1916. It's been up for debate for quite some time now. Much of Ella's life has remained mysterious because, though she became internationally famous, she was a very private person. Her beloved mother, Tempe, was a strong force in her life. And when Ella was elementary school age, they moved to Yonkers, which is north of Manhattan, Harlem, and the Bronx in New York City. Her mother Tempe and Ella's stepfather were in search of work, and like many others, they found it in the factories and industries of northern cities in the years around World War I. It was called the Great Migration, and the wave of people from the South moving to big cities completely changed neighborhoods. It was around this time that nearby Harlem became the epicenter of African American culture a time known as the Harlem Renaissance. Ella thrived as a young girl growing up in the neighborhood, bustling with people from many places. She was active in sports, a model student, and also clearly had a natural ability for singing and dancing. From the records her mother owned, she memorized popular songs of the day. Ella loved a singer named Connie Boswell and developed an incredible ability for mimicry by teasing her voice, she could just sing like Louis Armstrong and then even imitate the sound of his trumpet when he played his exciting hot jazz. Beyond popular music in school, she loved to dance for her friends and sang in the church choir. But when she was 15, her life fell apart. It was 1932 when her dear mother, trying to protect a friend's child during a car accident, died as a result of her own injuries. It was a monumental shift in Ella's life. Soon fleeing the abuse of her stepfather, she moved to Harlem to live with an aunt, but she couldn't focus in school. With little support and the grief from the loss of her mother, her grades slipped to the point that she stopped going to school altogether. Like many other young people considered truants at this time, she was taken to a reform school this one in Hudson, New York. By all accounts, it was a terrible place for her. 400 or so young women lived in 17 cottages. Black students were segregated and shared the two most crowded of these. There is a record of abuse towards many of the girls. And furthermore, Ella was without opportunities the white girls were allowed. After class activities like choir, which certainly would have been a good way for the future lady of song to center, recover, and find herself, were not open to her. Only white students were allowed. Somehow, some way, she escaped. We don't know details because she never talked about it. It's clear she hated that place. 
Since she couldn't go back to her aunt's home, where they'd be able to find her again, Ella Fitzgerald was homeless in New York at the age of 17. Technically, a ward of the state, since she was not yet an adult, she made money working for a gambling operation and singing and dancing on bustling street corners for spare change. It was an uneasy and unfortunate life for anyone, but luckily for Ella, someone helped her. That year, a group of older women took her in and offered her a bed. After hearing her sing, they also convinced her to try her luck at the new amateur night competition at the Apollo Theater. When the building housing the Apollo first opened on 125th Street in 1913, it was called Herdick and Siemens Theater. And like many other theaters in the area, it was only open to white New Yorkers. By 1933, a man named Sidney Cohen bought it, renovated the inside, and with the help of actor and local radio personality Ralph Cooper, the Apollo began to reflect the Harlem neighborhood around it. Harlem was bursting with creativity and achievement, and the Apollo soon became a jewel of the neighborhood. Black artists performed for largely black audiences, and as the years went by, it played host to some of the most important names in music, from Duke Ellington to James Brown to the Jackson Five to Mary J. Blige. But the Apollo's most famous gift to the world was amateur night, when anyone could wind up on stage where they either find the rowdy applause of 1,500 newfound fans or the demoralizing boos of 1,500 people who think the artists on stage should get off stage and go home to practice. The idea came from a similar segment of Ralph Cooper's radio show, but the live audience of the Apollo really set it off. As a result, the onstage adaptation has never ceased to draw a crowd ready to make or break any performers brave enough to stand on the Apollo stage. It was less than a year after the very first amateur night that 17-year-old Ella found herself on that stage. A million things led her to that moment. Some small, some big, some happy, and some tragic. Would she have been there if her mother hadn't bought those records? Would she have been there if her mother had still been alive? Would she have been there if she hadn't run away from reform school? Would she have been there if someone who cared enough had never encouraged the homeless teenager to give it a try? And while we're asking questions, what if she failed? Would she drift off into obscurity and a hard life alone in New York? We'll never know, but it's important to consider all of the things that get someone to any point in their lives. And it's also important to consider what they're capable of if only given the right chance. Ella had her chance, but she knew she couldn't dance. There was no topping the Edward sisters who just left the stage and left the crowd feeling great. After Ella unfroze from a short panic and informed Ralph Cooper that she wouldn't be dancing after all, the host probably worried for the young woman a bit. This was a lot of pressure. It'd be easy to crack. Who could blame her? But then she told him that she instead be taking the stage as Ella Fitzgerald, singer. 
It was a momentous decision, to say the least. Conveniently, the Apollo had its own house band to back up performers live and in person. Ella asked if they knew a few songs that she had memorized. At the time, she didn't know anything about keys, tempos, or anything else about the technical aspects of music. She just had to follow their lead and hope they started in a key she could sing. What happened next is unclear. It's been told many ways. And in fact, Ella herself has gone on record saying that she sang different songs. There was no recording, so we don't know for certain. Regardless, it's become the stuff of legend. It seems the most accurate scenario goes like this. Ella chose to sing a Hoagie Carmichael song called Judy. And though she had memorized the lyrics, she fumbled a bit at first, likely thanks to her nerves. The audience rumbled, and perhaps Ralph Cooper came out to calm her and urged her to start again. If that was the case, it worked, because most recollections say she knocked them dead. Ella sang with the powerful swing that seemed to dance around time while she also improvised melodically around the tune every one of the audience members knew. By the end, the audience was squarely on her side, filling the Apollo with cheers and claps and hoots of joy. That night, Ella was the winner of Amateur Night at the Apollo. But it didn't stop there. Her voice was so unique. She was so confident in her delivery, and she could swing so hard that she was soon asked to join as the lead singer of the Chick Webb Band, a band who split time as the Apollo House Band. From that point on, Ella Fitzgerald spent almost every day of her life surrounded by and performing music. Known as the First Lady of Song, Ella set the precedent of conquering the Apollo and then making a bigger splash and breaking into the music world at large. In the years that followed her debut, the Apollo remained a springboard for many. Just a few years after her fateful switch from dance to song, she celebrated a big commercial breakthrough when she recorded her song, A Tisket, A Tasket, which she adapted from a nursery rhyme. In her early years, Ella sang with Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and Count Basie, all of whom were huge figures in swing and jazz. Ella's voice was perfectly suited to their styles. But as the music changed and jazz moved towards the complicated and technically challenging styles like bebop, many of the singers did not make the transition. Ella, however, was as strong of an improviser as anyone who picked up an instrument. And thanks to her pioneering in the art of scat singing, she would share stages with Dizzy Gillespie, Joe Pass, and even Brazilian bossa nova composer Antonio Carlos Jobim. She made incredible music for over 50 years, toured the world, was adored by audiences, and was a beloved collaborator to some of the greatest musicians of her era. Under any other set of circumstances, this remarkable life probably wouldn't have looked the same for Ella Fitzgerald. And what a shame it would have been if the world had never heard Ella's voice. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. 
With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the chart-topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages. Teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. For this month's You Have 30 Seconds, we have a perfect fit. And I love it when that happens. Enna from Ohio is going to tell you about another incredible singer. But this lady was more than just a singer. I'll let Enna fill you in. Take it away! Hi, I'm Anna Godby, and I'll be talking about Josephine Baker. She was born June 3, 1906, and died April 12, 1975, and was a famous black performer and was an official spy of World War II. She also played in the Broadway show Shuffle Along, the first with an all-African-American cast. She also adopted 12 children all over the world and called the, them the Rainbow Tribe. That is why everyone should know about Josephine Baker. She's very inspiring. I love it. Thank you so much. I was so excited to see one about Josephine Baker. It's uh, one of my favorite stories. In fact, do you, if you remember our episode about Eugene Boulard, the World War I pilot and civil rights figure, when they both lived in Paris, Josephine would sing at his jazz club. But it was also, it's, it's believed that she filled in as a babysitter for his kids from time to time too, which is awesome. So thanks, Anna. I love what you did with it. Great job. If anyone else out there has a you have 30 seconds, all you got to do is record it, usually with a phone or a tablet. Tell me a story from the past in 30 seconds and send it to me. Hello at thepastandthecurious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yep, it's that time again, quiz time. And your first question, which has to do with musical instruments, is this. A pair of instruments were found in King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 and later played live on BBC Radio in 1939. What kind of instruments were they? A pair of ornate and ancient trumpets were found among King Tut's afterlife riches. At over 3,000 years old, they are believed to be the oldest trumpets in the world. One is made of silver and the other of bronze. 
When played in 1939, 150 million international listeners tuned in to hear the trumpets. And the audio is available through BBC's program Ghost Music if you'd like to find it. In 2011, the bronze trumpet was stolen from the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, but it was mysteriously returned a few weeks later. Okay, question number two. Many people are familiar with Louis Armstrong's hit, What a Wonderful World, which was easily his biggest hit. So it's easy to think of him as a singer, but he was an incredible instrumentalist as well, actually for most of his career. What instrument did Louis Armstrong play? Louis Armstrong played the trumpet. He didn't play King Tut's trumpet, but some of his trumpets are in museums too. Louis Armstrong began his career in New Orleans in the 1920s, and by the time of his death in 1971, he had five decades of success, stardom, and influence on American music that no one could rival. One of his trumpets is in a place of honor in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American Culture. Question number three. So, Ella played with Louis Armstrong, and she also played with Duke Ellington, one of music's most important figures. What instrument did Duke Ellington play? Duke was the leader of a big band filled with horns and drums, which he called his orchestra. And Duke wrote much of the music and arranged all of the parts that people would play. And in the band, he played the piano. Duke combined classical music ideas, swing, jazz, and Afro-Cuban aspects into a totally unique sound. Duke was the king. But when you have all of those instruments, everyone has to agree on how to get in tune. Lucky for Duke, before he really hit his stride, people had worked to settle the age-old dilemma of tuning a group of musicians, as you are about to hear. On June 28, 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, clearly marking an end to World War I. The International Accord took place in France's Fancy Pants Palace of Versailles exactly five years to the day that Archduke of Austria, Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated. This is notable and symbolic, because that historic moment is typically considered the opening act of World War I. This treaty, like pretty much all treaties, was an agreement between nations. In it, there are a lot of words which national representatives quibbled over and crafted ever so diligently. So I'm sure they would be very grateful, even from their graves, if you read it today. But I'm here to tell you, it's pretty dry. Unless you're someone who specializes in the legal nitty gritty of the war to end all wars. Not your thing? Me neither. Mostly, the many words had to do with ending the fights over borders, and Germany surrendering, and so on and so forth. But there were a few other fights that had been going on beyond the battlefield. The Treaty of Versailles was an agreement to end those fights too. And my favorite? It tried to end the war on how to tune your musical instrument. Yep, tuning instruments. It's in there alright. Article 282, Section 22. Like I told you, there's a lot of words. Would you believe that tuning an instrument wasn't something everyone agreed on? 
Up through the 1800s, many things were being standardized, meaning everyone agreed on the details of things. I'm talking measurements, time, weights, cataloging numbers, you name it. And it was for good reason. I mean, it's pretty hard to trade for something if you don't agree on a way to measure it. Likewise, musical tuning is something that is standardized today. But it wasn't always. In a way, it makes sense that the tuning clause... You mean Article 282, Section 22? Yes, thank you. It makes sense that this clause was included in a treaty signed in France. Because France took musical pitch seriously and actually passed a national law way back in 1852 about how to tune. Western music is a term used to describe music that developed in Europe, and the largest batch of early Western music was written to be performed in churches. Churches with pipe organs. You ever heard that joke? What's the difference between a piano and a tuna fish? You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. Yeah, that's the one. Well, that joke doesn't work with pipe organs. Ah, bummer. You see, pipe organs and tuna fish actually have something in common. You, you can't, can't tune, tune either. either. Pipe organs are gigantic. So gigantic that they'd be built right into the church. The way they sounded was the way that they were built. And there was no standardization. Michael McOrgan Builder, somewhere in Ireland, would have built a different organ than Hermann von Organmeister in Germany, and all of those probably would have differed from Monsieur Pierre Le Organ in France. And if these guys were as good of organ builders as their names would imply, the organs would be in tune with themselves, but probably not with one another. Not that it mattered, their instruments would never be in the same room, they'd never be around one another. These organs built into the churches were pretty permanent, and they couldn't be moved. But they also couldn't be tuned without major, major work. Unlike a violin, where you can just tighten or loosen a string with a little peg at the headstock. So when it came time to play, the other musicians would just tune to the organ, and singers would, you know, follow their ears to match those musicians. That meant musicians in France might sound a little different than the ones gathered around old Hermann von Organmeister's masterful organ in Germany. Today, musicians tune to a note called A440. It's an A note. And if it's played on a string, that string will vibrate 440 times per second. In fact, no matter what instrument is playing the A note, the sound waves coming from that instrument are vibrating at 440 times per second. But if it's a little lower, say 430 times per second, or a little higher, say 450 times per second, we might not be able to tell easily. Doesn't really matter as long as everyone has their instrument tuned to the same note, and that is their agreed-upon a. But scientifically, they are not the same. And they are clearly not in tune with one another. Now, it wasn't really a problem at first. Some places played their music tuned low, usually because that's what their organ player demanded. But some tuned theirs high. Like Goldilocks, some tuned theirs just right. But a few problems developed, and they got worse over time. First off, if you've ever been to a concert, you may recall having an easier time hearing, 
maybe even feeling, the lower sounds like the bass and the kick drum. That's because those low sound waves are bigger and slower, so they actually go farther distances. You can imagine the low notes of an organ blasting their way through a church and drowning everyone else out. But once the organ was phased out, orchestras could tune however they liked, and soon groups started to raise the pitch so the lower instruments in the ensembles didn't overshadow them, since now everything could be tuned together. Many liked the way this higher tuning sounded. It was bright and brilliant. And what orchestra wouldn't want to sound more brilliant? Of course, with the rising pitch, it meant tighter strings, so a few instruments got damaged and a lot of snapped strings bothered musicians. But in the name of brilliance, they tuned higher and higher. In places like Austria, things got really dramatic, though. You see, singers produce their music with their mouth, lungs, and vocal cords. You know this. All of these are part of the physical body, and like every other body part, they can be overstressed. As orchestras raise their pitch to stand out and be more brilliant than their neighbors or their cross-continental competitors, the pitch got out of hand and high notes got higher, and higher, and higher, and higher, until the singers couldn't keep up. Enough was enough. Something had to be done. This was around the time that France passed a law saying that an A note was 435 hertz, which is the scientific way to say 435 vibrations per second. This created a reference point for all of the other notes to tune to. An A vibrated at 435, a C above that would vibrate faster, and an E above that faster still. But if the A's matched, everything else would too. And if standard pitch had not been set, people might just have kept raising their pitch until everyone's vocal cords were shot and all of the violins were broken from overly tight strings. Science to the rescue. One guy working in Paris created the most complete set of tuning forks the world had ever seen, or heard, more appropriately. Rudolf Koenig was born in Prussia, but came to France to learn to make violins. But instead of becoming one of the most famous violin makers, he became one of the finest makers of tuning forks in the world. Now, tuning forks, if you're unaware, are the little metal tools that you can strike and then place on something like a table or an instrument or your teeth, and hear a very precise pitch which they are specifically crafted to create. As a maker, Koenig was so precise and such a perfectionist that when adjusting a fork's tuning, he would file it no more than three times, and then let it sit for a full day to cool down from that friction. So when the tuning fork king showed up in America for the 1876 World's Fair, everyone took notice. Say. Who's the guy with the tuning forks? Oh, I want to hear his pitch. It was a big deal because Koenig had brought his grand tonometer, which was the most complete and most precise set of tuning forks in the world. With incredible precision and diligence, he painstakingly created a whopping 670 forks in all, ranging from the super low 16 hertz, or vibrations per second, all the way up to 4,096 hertz. It was incredibly accurate, complete, and as close to a perfect collection of reference pitch tools that the world had ever seen. 
So the American government did everything they could do to keep the tuning forks of the Grand Tonometer on American shores. Ultimately, the U.S. Military Academy paid him handsomely for it, though now today the Grand Tonometer Collection is in the Smithsonian's National Tuning Fork Collection. But Rudolf Koenig didn't solve any international conflicts, nor did he save the vocal cords of stressed opera singers. France's laws didn't even do that. Heck, the Treaty of Versailles didn't even give us today's standard of the 440 hertz A note. The Treaty of Versailles set the standard at 435. The International Standards Organization, who regulates such things, recommended the pitch be set to 440 vibrations per second in 1955, but they didn't make it the official international standard until the 1970s. It's kind of funny to think that nearly all of the music written by people like Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, or anyone else really, sounded very, very different because of the relative tunings of their time and place. Unless you have the opportunity to hear Bach's music played on what are called period instruments today, tuned to the tuning standards of his time, you will never hear Bach the way Bach heard Bach. Is there a chicken in here? And if you ever need an A note at exactly 440 hertz for any reason, you can hear them all over the place. In fact, there's often a short tone played at the top of the hour on many radio stations. That's A440. Guess what else is? The dial tone on your phone. Or you can just hear it here, right now. So if you ever need an A, just, you know, come find this episode again. Easy peasy. Well, yeah, there's an A note for you. Hey, thanks everybody for listening to episode 78. Huge thanks to Melly Victor. I love working with her, uh, and it was really, really fun. Actually, really moving to, to put that story together, so I'm, I'm very proud of that one. Um, also, again, I want to thank everyone who came to Boston, and thank WBR, BUR also, because that was just a wonderful opportunity. Had so much fun. Uh, I'd love to hear from you if you went and you enjoyed it. Um, okay, I have some Patreon people to thank, absolutely. Uh, first off, Ethan Turner of Hubley, Nova Scotia, who turned 10 um, just this April 13th. So happy late birthday, Ethan. Um, I understand that you are a car schooler, so you listen to podcasts such as mine and others, I'm sure, uh, as you're driving to school to continue the learning process. And I think that's awesome. And shout out to you and shout out to everyone else, all the car schoolers out there who do that, who learn while they commute. I love it. Happy birthday, Ethan. I also need to thank Chi Sing Kam. Thank you so much for your support. I am so glad that you are out there and what we're producing matters to you. It's so great to know. I'm glad you're out there listening. And then also Atticus Mohammed Zadeh and the rest of the family, including Molly Bloom, who is not the kids podcast star Molly Bloom, but certainly just as cool. Uh, I hear that Atticus is a super fan and that makes me oh so very happy. I love knowing that all the way across the American continent in California, there are folks listening and enjoying. So thank you, Atticus. I hope you have a wonderful day and I hope you keep listening and I hope you keep enjoying. And that goes for all of you, okay? I'm so glad that you're out there. I really love making this show for you and I wish to continue. So I appreciate all of these people's support. Um, if you have a copy of the book, I see Lincoln's Underpants, I pretty partial to the book. I think it's pretty fun. Um, I would love it if you could leave a review somewhere that is really, really helpful. So if there's ever anything you want to do for the show and you've got a copy of the book, leave a review. Or if you want to ask your library, some libraries are having a little trouble with it. Some are not. I don't know what the deal is. But 
The book's out there, and I want people to read it. However you can get your mitts on it, fine by me. Thank you all so much. My name is Mick Sullivan. This is The Past and the Curious, and I'll talk to you next month.